Welcome to the Humanist Report. I'm Mike Figueredo, and no, I am not a Mormon. <laughs> On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the Supreme Court's King v. Burwell decision. We'll talk about marriage equality in Mexico and Coulter's comments on immigration, which are a little bit controversial to say the least. We'll also be discussing rapper ASAP Rocky, who made some controversial comments about the Black Lives Matter movement. And also, we'll be discussing a little bit more uh, on Bernie Sanders because he's phenomenal. You guys seem to really like the videos that I posted of Bernie Sanders last week. So we're going to go ahead and continue that discussion. So stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the show. Political pundits in the mainstream media often purport the claim that Bernie Sanders is too far to the left to earn the Democratic nomination. Here's an example of that. Uh, he's not going to be the nominee, but he is going to cause her an incredible headache and move her to the left and potentially make her unelectable in a general election. What she's basically saying is that Bernie Sanders could push Hillary Clinton so far to the left that in effect, she becomes unelectable. So let's actually examine Bernie Sanders' policy positions, and we'll compare them with the American people. So when it comes to the issue of money in politics, 84% of Americans believe that we ha the wealthy have too much influence, and this includes 80% of Republicans. 78% want money limited, and 54% say money does not equal free speech. So Bernie Sanders is right in line with public opinion when it comes to money in politics. Now as for Medicare for all, as of 2015, just over 50% of Americans support a single-payer healthcare system. This wasn't always the case, but now it's a reality. So this means that healthcare would be available to everyone and is funded through our, our tax dollars. This isn't extreme when you consider how much our tax dollars fund billionaires and their subsidies and whatnot. And it's also not extreme from a comparative standpoint when you see that every other modern industrialized nation has universal healthcare. Canada, Australia... Um, the UK as well as Scandinavia and many European countries. So he is now in line with the American people when it comes to healthcare. As for um, global warming, he wants to lead the world in reversing global warming. Now what does the American people think about this? So the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication says that 63% of adults think global warming is happening and 61% think it will harm future generations when it comes to taking action. A clear majority of citizens, that's 100% of counties surveyed, so a majority in every single county surveyed in this study says that we should fund research into renewable technology and regulate CO2 as a pollutant. 95% think we should put CO2 limits on coal-fired power plants that exist right now. So when it comes to global warming, Bernie Sanders is right in line with the American people again. As for free college... The Progressive Change Institute found that 63% of Americans think community college should be free. Now, Bernie Sanders wants all four years funded, so I'm not sure if Americans agree with all four years, but at least with respect to the first two years of college, Bernie Sanders is right in line with the American people. You see the trend here. As for raising the minimum wage and implementing paid sick leave and time off for employees, so the Associated Press, GFK, K poll found that 60% of Americans support raising the minimum wage, as does Bernie Sanders. 60% of Americans also think employers should offer paid sick leave, including half of all Republicans. Two-thirds of Americans are in favor of paid maternity and paternity leave, including 55% of Republicans. So yes, when it comes to minimum wage, Bernie Sanders is in line with the American people, including Republicans. Bernie Sanders says that he wants to create jobs by fixing infrastructure. Zogby finds that 65% of Americans think fixing infrastructure should be a high priority. Again, right in line with the American public. When it comes to fighting in income inequality by implementing progressive taxation, Gallup finds that 67% of Americans are dissatisfied with the country's income and wealth distribution. Heart Research Associates find that nearly four in five Americans want to close corporate loopholes. Associated Press finds that 68% think the wealthy pay too little in taxes, 60% say middle-class households pay too much, and 56% favor increases on capital gain taxes on households making more than $500,000 per year. Bernie Sanders wants to expand Social Security. What does the American public think about this? Well, public policy polling and moveon.org find that 65% of Americans support the notion of expanded Social Security. 70% are, 
are not in favor of Social Security cuts. Bernie Sanders is also not in favor of disastrous trade deals such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's right in line with the American people as well. This trend is very consistent. 34%, which is a plurality of Americans, think trade deals slow down the economy. 46%, which is also a plurality, think free trade deals such as the TPP makes wages lower. When it comes to job losses, a plurality of Americans, which is 46% again, think the free trade deals lead to job losses. He also supports marriage equality. Pew Research Center finds that 54% of Americans also support marriage equality. So what's the takeaway? His views, as well as his policies, are right in line with voters. This nonsense about him being too extreme and too far to the left is absolutely patently false. So he can win both the nomination and the general election because of this. Has anyone looked at the views of GOP candidates or Hillary Clinton? Well, they're a lot further from public opinion, less so Hillary Clinton, to be fair. But the GOP, they're, they're far out there. They're so extreme to the right that none of their views really match up with a majority of uh, American citizens. So my question is, what is your prediction? Do you think that he's actually going to beat Hillary? We know that his policy positions are winnable. We know that he's a populist and all of his views are right in line with the American public. But... Can he win? He's still far behind, but he's really catching up. So I really look forward to your discussion in the comment section to see if you actually think he can win. I think he can beat Hillary, and I really, really, I have a feeling that he's going to do it. He's going to beat Hillary, and I'm hopeful that he's going to win the national election. We know that if he gets the, uh, the nomination, he's going to win. Look at his views. So once people hear about Bernie Sanders and they know his opinion on things, I think his popularity is going to, it's going to rise up really, really fast. So as a member of the LGBTQ community, I've talked with some of my peers and a lot of people who are, um, who gay rights is a very salient issue to them, well, they just automatically flock to Hillary Clinton. And they think that she's the better, better candidate in comparison with Bernie Sanders when it comes to LGBTQ issues. Now look, LGBTQ issues is still a very, very important issue. Although we may have uh, national marriage equality, there's still work to be done. So in 29 states, she can be fired for being gay. In multiple states, businesses can actually decline service to gay people. In 28 states, doctors can refuse care to patients based on their sexual orientation. In two states, both Arkansas and Tennessee, there are laws prohibiting the enactment of legal protections for gay people. So you, it's illegal to shield them from discrimination. Uh, gay men are still prohibited from donating blood. So yes, it's important that we have a candidate who is going to be um, a champion for gay rights. But when it comes to whether or not Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders is the better candidate, well, a Reddit user had uploaded a video of Hillary Clinton that is going to give us some insight into who's the better candidate. Watch this video. I believe that marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. I have had occasion in my life to defend marriage, to stand up for marriage, to believe in the hard work and challenge of marriage. So I take umbrage at anyone who might suggest that those of us who worry about amending the Constitution are less committed to the sanctity of marriage or to the fundamental bedrock principle that it exists between a man and a woman going back into the mists of history as one of the founding, foundational institutions of history and humanity and civilization, and that it's primary principal role during those millennia has been the raising and socializing of children for the society into which they are to become adults. So she says, quote, I believe marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman. This was in 2004, mind you. Even though she doesn't favor a constitutional amendment, or to be more fair, she didn't favor it back then, she says that limiting marriage to heterosexual couples is uh, something that she's no less committed to, and she's going to fight against equality. 
So she also states that marriage is against, or it's about children. So it is likely the case that she was against same-sex couples being able to adopt. So now, to be fair to Hillary Clinton, she did come around, and now she's a very vocal advocate for LGBTQ equality. She, unfortunately, however, took the same bigoted stance as Obama. She was pro-civil union and anti-marriage equality when it was convenient for her political aspirations. So now, when it comes to Bernie Sanders, let's see what he has to say about marriage equality back in the day. So, according to the Washington Blade, in 1996, Sanders was among 67 U.S. House members to vote against the Defense of Marriage Act, which was later passed by Congress and signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Now, in 2013, this was declared unconstitutional. He says... Um, Bernie Sanders says, that is, that the Obama administration should end the medical regulation barring openly trans people from serving in the U.S. military. What has Hillary Clinton said about trans people serving in the military? That's right, she hasn't said anything yet. So, when it comes to banning gay adoptions in D.C., Bernie, Bernie voted no way back in 1999. Now, in 20, or 2004, Hillary indicated that she would probably be against allowing same-sex couples to adopt. But in 1999, Bernie's voting record shows that he, stand, um, that he stood up for LGBTQ equality. Now, in 2004 and 2006, he voted no on constitutional amendments banning same-sex marriages. Now, to be fair to Hillary Clinton, she also took this position. Now, in 2006, just a couple years after Hillary was still a bigot towards LGBTQ people, Bernie Sanders received a 100% score by the Human Rights Campaign. So now, although it's the case that both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are now unequivocal supporters of LGBTQ equality, it's a little bit clear when we go back in history who was the bigger supporter all along. So, I'm sorry, Hillary, but... Saying that you supported civil unions back then, it doesn't make you an advocate for gay rights. Separate does not equal equal. <laughs> Separate is not equal. I think that that's a little bit better of a phrase. So I'm glad that she changed her mind. Kudos to Hillary Clinton for now being a vocal supporter. But the takeaway is that Bernie Sanders is the bigger supporter because he's been unrelenting on this issue. He's always supported LGBTQ rights. You see, much like President Obama, Hillary Clinton, she didn't come around to the idea of marriage equality until the majority of citizens actually agreed with it. Bernie Sanders, however, while his voting record indicates that he's always been a champion of LGBTQ equality, and this includes transgender equality because although both Hillary and Obama are pretty ad pretty big advocates of LGBTQ, equality, they're, they're a little less good on the issue of transgender rights, which is a very important issue as well. So, if you are a member of the LGBTQ community, or you're an avid supporter of it, then you need to know that although Hillary Clinton is a supporter now, this was not always the case. Bernie Sanders has been a longtime supporter, and that's not going to change depending on the political climate. If tomorrow we wake up and a majority of citizens are all of a sudden against same-sex marriage, well, you can bet Hillary Clinton will change her stance, while Bernie Sanders, he's going to take the same position that he always had, which is pro-equality. So when it comes to the question for the viewers, do you think that Hillary Clinton was always in favor of marriage equality and was just playing politics, kind of like we can see that President Obama did, because in 2006... He was in support of same-sex marriage, but once he announced that he was running for president, well, all of a sudden, he's pro-civil unions. But once public opinion changed, now he's in favor of gay rights. So he abandoned LGBTQ people for political purposes. So do you think this is the case with Hillary? Was she actually taking a principled stance? <laughs> was she taking a principled stance? I can't say it with a straight face, because she's so disingenuous. I don't think she could take a principled stance on anything. So do you think that she was always in favor of marriage equality and was just hiding it? Comment down below. According to Talking Point's memo, several GOP candidates took money from the overtly racist Council of Conservative Citizens group. Now, this is a group who thinks that African Americans are ruining the country, and their rhetoric is so vitriolic that the shooter who perpetrated the Charleston shootings actually cited their rhetoric in his manifesto. So clearly, this group is disgusting. And the fact that GOP candidates took money from them is even more disgusting. Okay, so this group's president, Earl Holt III, donated 8,500 to Ted Cruz, 2,250 to Rand Paul, 
1500 to Rick Santorum. Holt also donated to Mia Love. She's the first African-American Republican who's actually elected to Congress. So clearly, this is really, really troubling. The fact that even she took money, it's preposterous. It, it's grotesque. One thing that's a bit more problematic is that several GOPers actually spoke at several events for this racist group. Bob Barr had spoke at their events. Trent Lott, who's actually the former Senate Majority Leader, actually spoke at their events as well. Now, in 1998, the Republican National Committee asked members of the party to sever ties with this group, but they did not, obviously. Otherwise, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, and Rick Santorum wouldn't have taken money from them. So, all three of these candidates, to be a little bit fair to them, they say that they're actually going to be donating this money to the Mother Emanuel Hope Fund, which is actually going to benefit the families of the victims of the Charleston shooting. But the overall troubling fact is that they would accept money from them in the first place. Why would you take money from a white nationalist group? We know why. It's because they don't care about black people and they're racist. So this, as well as the Steve Scalise scandal, I think it really highlights the fact that Republicans have become an extremist party. Racism is not something that you want to associate with if you're a politician. And given the fact that we have an increasing rate of ethnic minorities in this country, you would think that they would want to try to reach out to minorities. It seems as though Rand Paul tried to some extent, but I mean, not really, because his policies are still going to harm them. But this is disgusting, and again, it speaks to the fact that this is a extremist party. I don't necessarily know for sure, even though I alluded to it, that Rick Santorum, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, that they're actually racist, but they certainly sympathized with racists, and that's just as bad. So you're not going to take money from these groups unless you're going to appease them, because why would Earl Holt III, a white supremacist, donate money to politicians if they're going to further the cause of African Americans? No. He thinks that whites are disappearing. So he donated to these presumably racist, in his view, candidates in order to tote his point of view. Otherwise, he wouldn't have donated to them. This guy hasn't donated to Barack Obama. He hasn't donated to Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. He's donated to the candidates who he thinks is going to support his racist views. So this is... It's disgusting. I'm glad that they're donating the money. But why did they wait to donate it until they were caught? If they were caught, do you think they would donate the money? I don't think so. So corruption in this country, it's gone so far that even racists are influencing and buying out politicians. And it makes me really, really frustrated with our democracy, with our quote democracy, I should say. So my question for the audience, what do you think will be the ultimate fate of the Republican Party given their extremist views? Will they collapse, leaving room for a new party to take their place? Or perhaps maybe the Democrats will be the de facto right-wing party and we'll have a new progressive party pop up? Do you think this is a possibility? Or do you think they're going to just be forced to moderate and move further to the center? Because right now, they're not electable. They're not going to win over minority voters. So I'm excited to hear what you think. Comment down below. In a big win for President Obama's corporate donors, he has now been given fast-track authority by Congress. This is, this is our democracy now, people. So this means that he can negotiate this harmful trade policy, and Congress can't filibuster it, they can't add any amendments to it. So really, this is a direct giveaway to the corporations. Huffington Post writes, Critics of the administration's trade platform had viewed the TPA bill as their best opportunity to stymie Obama's agenda. Labor unions, environmental groups, internet freedom advocates, and the overwhelming majority of congressional Democrats had battled Obama over concerns that TPP and other pending trade agreements will exacerbate income inequality, which it will, and empower corporations to challenge important rules and regulations. The fast-track powers approved by the Senate on Wednesday will last for six years, making them available to the next president. So you can expect that this is going to be a problem for the coming years and for the next administration. Great. So in a nutshell, trade promotion authority was granted because a bunch of Democrats caved in to corporate interests. Ron Wyden, the Democratic senator from Oregon, who's actually up for re-election next year, by the way, just to kind of put that out there because now he should be challenged, well, he was initially on the fence, and all of a sudden, he's one of the biggest champions of the bill. Once corporations donated to him, 
and he was lobbied and received thousands of dollars, well, all of a sudden he has this to say. It's a good day for American workers. It's a good day for American communities and a good day for governance because the Senate showed you could get a significant measure of trust behind a major economic initiative. So, see what money in politics can do? I'm just going to throw wolf-pack.com out there. So, back to the bill itself. Huffington Post adds, Labor unions have battled the fast-track bill, concerned that expanded trade relationships with low-wage countries like Vietnam will drive down worker pay and ship jobs overseas. But some of the most bitter battles is the fast-track debate, or some of the most bitter battles in the fast-track debate, sorry, have been over regulatory policy. So Doctors Without Borders called the Trans-Pacific Partnership the most damaging trade agreement we have ever seen in terms of access to medications. Um, so for poor people, that is, it's going to disproportionately impact them. So this is a response to leaked drafts of the deal, which revealed that it would grant pharmaceutical companies long-term monopolies on prescription drugs, thus dramatically driving up prices. Now, Senator Elizabeth Warren has targeted the TPP's enforcement mechanism, which is a process known as Investor State Dispute Resolution, which allows corporations to sue governments before an international tribunal over regulations that curb their profits. So what we're doing is we're putting profits over the environment, profits over our own people. Although Fast Track Authority does make the passage of the TPP easier, it's not guaranteed yet, but there are some implications that are very damaging if they are if this is passed. So we can say goodbye to environmental regulations, we can say goodbye to workers' regulations, we can say hello to lower wages for American workers, and also a new era of corporate fascism. So the takeaway, if it passes, it's going to really forever tarnish Obama's legacy once all of the consequences from it fully come to fruition. It's disgusting that he's even pushing for this bill because when I voted for President Obama, I thought he would really advocate on my behalf. But really what we're seeing now in full effect, we already knew this, but what we're seeing is that he's advocating for the corporations as are the corporatist Democrats in Congress. So what do we got to do next year? We've got to mobilize young voters. We've got to mobilize people to vote these fools out of office who just want to give away policies to corporations. So question to the audience. In your interpretation, do you think this trade promotion authority bill is constitutional? You know my opinion. I think it is wholly unconstitutional, but I'm excited to hear what you guys think. So please comment down below. In the case of King v. Burwell, Justices Roberts and Kennedy joined with the four liberal justices to strike down the new challenge to the Affordable Care Act, thus defeating it 6-3, to three, surprisingly. So if they had ruled the other way, it's estimated that 6-7 to seven million people would have lost their health care insurance. So this is a win. This is a win for America, this is a win for middle class America, and this is a win for the poor. So in the majority opinion, Roberts writes, Congress passed the Affordable Care Act to improve health insurance markets, not destroy them. He adds, petitioners' plain-meaning arguments are strong, but the act's intent and structure compel the conclusion that Section 36B, which is the part that was challenged, allows tax credits for insurance purchased on any exchange created under the act. So this is a great opinion. I'm actually a little bit surprised, although Justice Roberts had sided with the majority opinion when he protected Obamacare during the last challenge, I was a little bit skeptical that he would do the same because he got a lot of criticism from conservatives. And I'm also surprised that Justice Kennedy joined with him because he was not, I believe, in the majority opinion last time. When it comes to the dissenting opinion, Justice Scalia loses his mind. He writes, words no longer have meaning which is ironic coming from a guy who thinks that money is free speech and that corporations are people. So he adds, Our only evidence of what Congress meant comes from the terms of the law, and those terms show beyond all questions that tax credits are available only on state exchanges. Huffington Post writes, in arguing against this, For this to be true, the authors of the Affordable Care Act would all have to be lying about their true intent on subsidies. So if you want to know on the intent of the legislator, well, you can ask them, Justice Scalia, but he's lost his mind. He's not really a real justice anymore. He's no longer 
um, espousing a jurisprudent opinion. He's just espousing his own political opinion, which there's going to be bias in the Supreme Court. These are humans, but I mean, you don't have to be so overt about it. Now, when it comes to the opinions of the GOP candidates for 2016, they're pretty interesting. I'm going to read them off to you. So, Marco Rubio says, despite the court's decision, Obamacare is still a bad law that is having a negative impact on our country and on millions of Americans. If you consider expanded healthcare access a bad thing, then I guess you'll agree with him. He says, I remain committed to repealing this bad law and replacing, remember these words, repealing this bad law and replacing it with my consumer-centered plan that puts patients and families back in control of their health of their healthcare decisions. We need consumer care, not Obamacare. Well, they do have that now because you can actually go on healthcare.gov and pick which plan you want. So I don't see what he's getting at here. Mike Huckabee writes, there isn't a do-over provision in our constitution that allows unelected SCOTUS judges power to circumvent Congress and rewrite bad laws. They're not circumventing Congress. Congress passed the ACA. What don't you get about that? Ted Cruz writes, President Obama's health care law remains deeply unpopular, which is actually not true, and is harming countless Americans by increasing costs and worsening the quality of care. I remain fully committed to the repeal of Obamacare, every single word of it. Jeb Bush adds, as President of the United States, I would make fixing our broken health care system one of my top priorities. I will work with Congress to repeal and replace this flawed law with conservative reforms that empower consumers with more choices and control over their health care decisions. Rick Perry says, with individual premiums up more than 50% and nearly 5 million people losing their health plans, which is patently false, he adds, Americans deserve better than what we're getting with Obamacare. It's time we repealed and replaced it with truly affordable patient-centered healthcare reform, and I look forward to laying out my ideas on this issue. I agree with him with the point that uh, citizens do deserve better than Obamacare, but I don't agree with whatever plan he would implement. I'll explain that later. So, Rand Paul says, Obamacare raises taxes, harms patients and doctors, and is the wrong fix for America's healthcare system. As president, I would make it my mission to repeal and propose a real solution for our, for our healthcare system. Chris Christie writes, this decision turns common language on its head. Now, leaders must turn our attention to making the case that Obamacare must be replaced. Finally, Lindsey Graham says, today's decision only reinforces why we need a president who will bring about real reform that repeals Obamacare and replaces it with a plan that expands consumer choice, increases coverage, delivers better value for the dollar, and gives states more control without sitting or stifling job creation. Sorry. So the takeaway is that there's a common theme in all of their uh, railings against Obamacare. It's repeal and replace it. Almost all of them said it. Now, when it comes to what they would replace Obamacare with, well, what is their plan? It's this. That's because they've got nothing. None of them have proposed a plan that would replace Obamacare. None of them has said anything at all. So, really, their goal is just to repeal Obamacare and just leave people hanging without their health care subsidies. This is a problem. It was a problem before Obamacare, and it's going to be a problem if they do choose to repeal it if one of them is elected. So my question for the viewers is, given that a single-payer system is the only realistic option, would you support free universal health care if it meant a raise to your taxes? Now, it may not necessarily raise your taxes. We could reallocate funds from defense spending, for example, in order to spend on health care. So would you support this? That's my question. Comment down below. On his show last week, Bill Maher grilled Ann Coulter on immigration. Immigration policy where we would choose the best in the world, and that was changed. This is a fairly well, recent policy. We would choose the whitest in the world. That's... That's, that's your audience. Um, no, we wouldn't, but we look, the pre-1970 immigrants were more educated, made more money, mm. were more likely to buy houses, and 30% of them went right. home. Now no well, one goes home, they go on welfare, and they are far more likely to be on welfare than the native population. Well, I think a nation's well, policies should be concerned with the people already here, and that includes the immigrants who came last year and the year before. It should be people who, who, who live here benefit, not to become the, you know, 
battered woman's shelter of the world where we're bringing in <laughs> the hardest cases and, um, you know, the, the wife beaters and the, uh, the single mother with eight well, I, kids. Again, and where, but where it... How do we... But, uh, again, I... I don't feel these assertions are borne out by stats because they have stats from different governmental departments. Like you say, there are actually 30 million illegals, whereas every right. other department I can find Well, they're says all using 12. the same number, though. I, I mean, I've read everywhere that uh, actually the net immigration from Mexico in the last seven years has been zero because our economy got worse, theirs got better. They, Mexican women used to have seven children and now they have two. I think that would make a big difference. Um, so let's say everything you say is true, which it isn't. Um, well, let's and, say it and, isn't. And, and, and Your snotty little remark okay. aside, it's irrelevant. <laughs> okay. The point at issue is, should America's immigration policy be used to benefit the people already here, or should it be benefiting Pakistani pushcart operators, illiterate in their own language, never mind ours, who come here, go on welfare, commit terrorism, engage in crimes? All right, let's... Why, why wouldn't you look out across the world like right. a sports team does let's... and try to get the creme de la creme? Not let's... like this audience. We don't want these people. We want the creme de la creme. <laughs> we want to up the average. Up the you average. Gotta, you got to give it to her. She ain't afraid. <laughs> you got to give her that. But she's also, uh, but she's also wrong. Okay. We're getting because we're getting a and, lot of crime and what about welfare use. Your imaginary friend, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what? I mean, would he be okay? with this attitude about about the yes of course okay. you don't have to right. take homeless people to sleep in your bed to prove you're a christian this is our home seems like he would like that okay so my initial reaction can pretty much be concisely summed up by his panelist where it uh, up the average um and we already have the puerto ricans <laughs> I thought that was perfect. So getting to her actual argument, she says, quote, should America's immigration policy be used to benefit the people already here, or should it be benefiting Pakistani pushcart operators illiterate in their own language, let alone ours, who come here, go on welfare, commit terrorism, engage in crimes? Why wouldn't you look out against the world like a sports team and try to get the creme de la creme? And she argues that she would not become that we should not become the battered women's shelter of the world. So I think that what she really has is two main concerns. Now, first and foremost, she says that undocumented immigrants are a threat to U.S. peace and stability because they come here and they commit acts of terrorism and contribute to crime. Now, her second point is that she thinks we should focus resources such as social safety net programs on our citizens and not on undocumented immigrants. So let's go ahead and address both of her claims. So for point A, Mexicans are not creating terrorism because presumably she's referring to Mexican immigrants, right? So she says that um, they come here, they commit terrorism. Well, who's committing terrorism in the U.S.? Well, the majority of it comes from white people. Between 2006 and 2011, domestic terrorism is perpetrated mostly by right-wing extremist groups. And these are comprised of white people. So... We don't really have these statistics for recent years, but there's another finding that says that since 2002, white people have been mostly responsible, particularly right-wing extremist groups, for the majority of terrorism that occurs in the U.S. So the FBI writes, formal right-wing hate groups such as the National Alliance, the World Church of the Creator, and Aryan Nations represent a continuing terrorist threat. Although efforts have been made by some extreme, extremist groups excuse me, to reduce openly racist rhetoric in order to appeal to a broader segment of population and to focus increased attention on anti-government sentiment, racism-based hatred remains an integral component of these groups' core orientations. Al Jazeera writes, Since 9-11, there have been more deadly attacks in the U.S. carried out by right-wing assailants than so-called jihadists. What's more, right-wing attacks have killed almost twice as many Americans. So I don't get where she's getting that undocumented immigrants are contributing to terrorism. Maybe she's talking about people who, uh, who immigrate from the Middle East and North Africa, but most of 
that type of immigration is all legal because it's a lot more difficult to get here legally. Now, addressing her point about crime, the AIC writes that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes or be behind bars than native-born citizens, and high rates, of high rates of immigration are not associated with higher rates of crime. This holds true for both legal immigrants and the undocumented, regardless of their country of origin or level of education. So if we look at this chart here, we'll see that 3.5% of native-born males are currently incarcerated, whereas only 0.7% of foreign-born males are incarcerated. Now, that doesn't actually control for undocumented immigrants. So even less than 0.7% of undocumented immigrants are incarcerated, which implies that they're not committed crime. And furthermore, undocumented immigrants who are guilty of perpetrating crimes, well, they are deported. So her first claim that undocumented immigrants come here and they contribute to terrorism and commit crime, well, that's patently false. Moving on to her second point. If the allocation of funds is her main con concern, then she needs to answer these questions. First, why doesn't she care about war spending? So to Ann Coulter, death spending is okay, but hel helping people, that's not okay. We can't spend our money on social safety nets for undocumented immigrants. They should just be homeless when they come here. But war, that's 100% okay, even though we're killing people with that money. So my next question is, Ann Coulter, would you deny healthcare to an undocumented immigrant who was going to die if he or she did not receive that care? And also, should children of undocumented immigrants go hungry? That's another question for her to answer. If her answer is yes and that we shouldn't care, well, that's problematic with respect to her own religion because her God would not agree with this. So getting to Bill's question for her, what would Jesus do? She's wrong according to her own holy book. She says that, no, we... Jesus wouldn't think that we should bring a homeless person home and let him sleep in our bed, but let's, let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the laws of Christ. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Matthew 5.42 says, Give to no one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And there is a lot more. So, in conclusion, she's right. Jesus wouldn't think that she should, give a, um, she should allow a homeless person to sleep in bed with her. He would think that she should give up her bed entirely and that she should, she should uh, sleep on the floor in order to allow that homeless person in her bed. So, according to her own holy book, she is immoral when it comes to undocumented immigrants and on immigration in general. Her underlying motivation, I think, is racism and xenophobia. By creme de la creme, she's not talking about people with PhDs or people who have contributed to the world society. She's talking about white people, and Bill Maher was right to bring up that point. So, Ann Coulter, you have proven once again that you are bigoted. She, in essence, is... She's a white nationalist without actually saying it. According to the scientific journal Nature, we are currently in the sixth mass extinction event. This is terrifying. So the last mass extinction occurred 65 million years ago, and as you all know, it wiped out the dinosaurs. Now, species are going extinct 100 times faster than any other prior mass extinction event. Horrific. Scientists directly attribute this to human activities. Specifically, they cite the continuing spread of agriculture, which destroys wild ha habitats, obviously, the introduction of invasive species, pollution, overfishing. These are some of the things that they cite. They say that many species are threatened. 41% of all amphibians, 26% of mammals, and 13% of birds. Now, one-third of coral reefs are depleted. These support more life than any other ecosystem on the planet. I can't believe, I mean, I can believe it, but I'm just, it sounds really hor horrifying to, to actually see them say it. So now, the animals closest to extinction are the Sumatran elephant, the Amur leopard, and the mountain gorilla. So the takeaway, this is going to result in a loss of 75% of species and could occur anywhere from less than 100 years from now 
all the way up to 1,000 years. This event, they say, will threaten humanity. So when I read this article, it really, I couldn't get it out of my head. It was something that was really depressing. We already know that anthropogenic climate change is happening and we're, we're obviously responsible for it with emissions of CO2. We know that we are leading to the destruction of habitats around the world and we're not doing anything about it. So when it comes to my opinion on this, can humans survive this? I really don't know. I don't know that we're resourceful enough, or actually I should rephrase that. I think we're resourceful enough, but I think that our priorities just aren't in line. I mean, last week I did a video where Neil deGrasse Tyson talked about extreme weather being the new normal, and we're witnessing that right now, yet politicians have their ears plugged and they don't want to do anything about it. So my question to the viewers is whether or not you think humans are resourceful enough to actually save themselves from going extinct along with all the other species. And a follow-up question is, is that question too anthropocentric? I mean, we're killing off tons of non-human animals, but all that I'm worried about and a lot of other people are worried about is whether or not we can survive this. So comment down below what you think about this. I'm really sad that a lot of media outlets aren't even covering it. Even online podcasts who typically cover scientific news, they're not covering it. And this makes me really sad because this is something that would hopefully galvanize people to pressure their representatives to act. But it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. This study is probably going to fall to the wayside, unfortunately. So comment down below and tell me what you think. Marriage equality finally comes to Mexico, but there's a caveat. So in the recent ruling, the justices write, as the purpose of matrimony is not procreation, there is no justified reason that the matrimonial union be heterosexual, nor that it be stated as between only a man and a woman. Such a statement turns out to be discriminatory in its mere expression. So to get to this decision, they cited U.S. Supreme Court cases and also anti-discrimination treaties that Mexico has signed. Only one state prior to this ruling has legalized same-sex marriage, and that's Coahuila. So the ruling, unfortunately, does not override state laws, but the New York Times writes, this ruling allows gay couples who are denied marriage rights in their states to seek injunctions from district judges who are now obligated to grant them. So unlike our system where we have judicial review, which means that the Supreme Court can invalidate laws that are contrary to the Constitution, well, Mexico's Supreme Court system is not as straightforward. So one-third of Congress or one-third of a state's Congress or the Mexican Attorney General has to ask the court to review the constitutionality of the law in order for them to be able to actually strike it down. Now, seeing that this presumably wasn't the case, it's not actually going to overturn all of the state's laws. So, according to Jose Caballero, a scholar of Mexican constitutional law, this ruling will benefit couples with money. Poor ones will not have time or money to file an injunction needed. So yes, you can get married if you live in a state that is not Coquila, but you're going to have to file an injunction, and obviously this is going to cost money. So there's not equal access to marriage. So now the Catholic Church has actually come out against this ruling. They've condemned it, and the plaintiff, whose name is Haram Gonzalez, was actually expelled from his church over this. So this is still frustrating. Mexico kind of has marriage equality if you're a gay couple that is willing to file an injunction, but you've got to have money to do this. So my question for the audience is, given the current political climate in Mexico with mass corruption, widespread famine, etc., are you hopeful that social issues can still progress in Mexico? Comment down below. So one of my favorite rappers, Aesop Rocky, used some conservative talking points against the Black Lives Matter movement. At the Debate Society of Oxford Union, the rapper says, Why are we exploiting the beef between urban community and the police uh, when 60 people got shot on July in 2014? So, one cop shoots a black person, that kind of shit is inevitable. Not to glorify it, but that's nothing new. Let's talk about the black-on-black -black crime. If you're not going to talk about the main topic, then don't talk about it at all. So now I'll preface my discussion by saying that I really like Aesop Rocky. I think he's a phenomenal rapper. His first album was a little bit better than the second one. That's neither here nor there. But he's also really smart. He's a supporter of LGBTQ rights, and I think that he is um, politically savvy to a certain extent. But he is 
in effect committing the fallacy of relative privation. Now, what that means is that if there's a particular problem, you'll commit the fallacy of relative privation if you say, no, you can't talk about that problem because we have this problem. So problem B can't be addressed until we address problem A. So a lot of the times the example is going to be uh, starving children in Africa. So we'll say, well, I'm worried about such and such. Well, you shouldn't be worried about that because there are starving children in Africa and we need to address that problem before we can address any other issues. So this is the fallacy of relative privation because it's the case that you can actually be worried about more than one issue. So now getting to the actual substance of his quote, I think that it's interesting how Americans might be the only people in the world who disassociate the police from the state. What people don't realize is that the police force is the state. So if a police officer assaults you, that is state-sanctioned violence. So now state-sanctioned violence against citizens is a very big problem and it's different from other types of violence, including black-on-black -black crime, including white-on-white -white crime, including anybody-on-anybody -anybody crime. It's different. So when it comes to black-on-black -black crime, is it a problem? Well, sure. But do you want to know what else is a problem? White-on-white -white crime. Most white people are assaulted by other white people, just like most black people are assaulted by other black people. So we can induce crime in general, which would lead to a deduction in both white-on-white -white and black-on-black -black crime by addressing it through policy. So if we legalize drugs or provide equal opportunity to social economically disadvantaged cities, well then this would ameliorate crime and, as a result, lower black-on-black -black and white-on-white -white crime because I want to make sure we know that white-on-white -white crime is a problem as well. It's just not black people who are assaulting themselves. It's also white people. So the takeaway, we don't have to solve black-on-black -black crime, or crime in general, before fighting against the injustice that is police brutality. Sure, crime is an issue, but civil rights leaders such as D. Ray McKesson are rightfully fighting against police brutality because, again, that is state-sanctioned violence. That's inherently different than violence perpetrated by citizens. And if the state can, uh, can be violent against its own citizens, well, then that's a huge problem, and it spells out tyranny. So... Aesop Rocky, sorry buddy, I love you but you're wrong on this one. Welcome to the Weekly Roundup, where I go over news stories you might have missed over the last week. First and foremost, 2016 GOP hopeful Scott Walker is against abortion rights for victims of rape and incest. Huffington Post writes, Wisconsin Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald told the Times that Walker met with him and Robin Voss, the Republican State Assembly Speaker, and told them he wanted to see a 20-week abortion ban on his desk that did not contain exceptions for rape or incest victims. Where it... Uh, up the average. Um, and we already had the Puerto Ricans. This demonstrates two things about Scott Walker. First and foremost, he doesn't care about protecting victims. Second of all, he's for unnecessary policy, because only 1.4% of abortions occur after the 20-week mark. This is a stupid thing to do because 74% of the American public is actually against you on this issue. They want exceptions for rape and abortion victims, even if they aren't particularly pro-choice. So good job and good luck getting elected, Scott Walker, because this is not a smart move. Mike Huckabee recently said that we don't need to have conversations about racism in this country because a belief in God solves racism. Take a look at this video. And I keep hearing that people talk about we need more conversations about race. Actually, we don't need more conversations. What we need is conversions because the reconciliation that changes people is not a racial reconciliation. It's a spiritual reconciliation when people are reconciled to God. We saw it in those church members. When I love God, and I know that God created other people, regardless of their color, as much as he made me, mm -hmm. I don't well, have a problem with racism. It's, it's solved. Mike Huckabee, there's only one problem with your argument. The overwhelming majority of the American population is religious, and the fact that racism still exists, well, this kind of undermines your theory there, doesn't it? <laughs> So, this is my question for you. What the hell are you talking about? 
In other news, South Carolina is going to be removing the Confederate flag from their Capitol building. Also, retailers such as Walmart and Amazon have agreed to stop selling Confederate flags. Now, prior to this announcement, sales of the Confederate flag have surged on Amazon. So, all you racists, make sure you get your Confederate flags before they're all gone. So, here's my take on this. You have a right to display any flag that you want, but just know that it represents a portion of the population that were willing to die to maintain slavery. It's a symbol of racism, hate, and reminds us of a dark time for our country. So why would you want to display this flag? Now you have every right to do that. You can put a Confederate flag up in your house and whatnot, or on your body, but just know that it doesn't represent Southern pride. It represents Southern shame. Now whenever people see you touting it, this is their reaction. So that's your weekly roundup. If you have any ideas about what types of stories you want me to cover in the weekly roundup, given that I only have a couple of minutes to do so, comment down below and tell me what you want to hear. That concludes our second episode. I was really hoping that I would get to cover the uh, Supreme Court ruling on marriage equality, but unfortunately we're going to have to cover it next week. It looks as though they're going to be ruling on it either tomorrow, but most likely on Monday because they... In the past, they tend to kind of space out the more bigger cases. So we'll cover that next week. I may do a direct video where I don't actually um, film a formal podcast, but I kind of discuss the issue because it's something that important. I think it's something that should be celebrated because this whole week, I was really hoping to fit that in because all the topics that I chose were inherently depressing. So I wanted to give you guys something that would uh, put a smile on your face, maybe. So come next week. Hopefully, we'll all be smiling and celebrating together. Otherwise, we'll all be crying together, but I think that it's gonna it's gonna go our way. It's gonna it's gonna rule the way that we want to, and I think it's going to be maybe more than a five to four decision. It may even be six to three, but we'll see if I'm right on that. Um, now, when it comes to the show itself, I'm really hoping to get some feedback from you guys. I'm not a hundred percent sure what topics you guys want covered, and I'm not just talking to kind of. Uh, validate myself. So I want to know what stories you guys want to hear. What issues that I talk about that um, that you guys want to hear. So if you can comment down below and tell me what you want to see in future episodes, that would be hugely appreciated. So my Bernie Sanders video, for example, it was received pretty well. I got the most views on that one. But again, we don't have too much views yet because we're at our first week. got about 500 views. That's more than I thought. I suspected that maybe two people would watch, but I got a little bit more than that. Some videos are they're doing better than others, to say the least. But again, I'm just having fun with this, and really it's about having a fun political discussion that involves the audience. So please, tell me what videos and topics you want from me in the future. Um, that concludes our show. I will see you guys next week.